Scott Horton Comedy. That's right, I'm doing an event with Robbie the Fire Bernstein here in Austin on the 5th of November as part of Robbie's Porch Tour. It's kind of an audition, actually. I'm trying to get the job to replace Dave Smith as Rob's sidekick. So show up and pretend to laugh at my awesome, hilarious comedy jokes. Robbie and another dude are also doing stand-up. Then Robbie and I are going to do a live podcast about libertarian themes and Star Wars and things. That's November the 5th. Go to thefiretix.com to find out all about it. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, you guys on the line, I've got Ted Snyder again from antiwar.com. The back door to NATO is his latest before that, choosing sides in the new Cold War. And who stopped the war in Ukraine? Um, let's start with that one. Okay. I wasn't aware that the war had been stopped, but I'm happy to slap whoever you tell me on the back for that. What's the deal? So so I didn't mean who stopped the war in Ukraine as in someone stopped it. I meant that up to now, the really kind of controversial question has been who started the war in Ukraine. And um, I'm trying to make the point that after this much time and this many missed opportunities of stopping it, an equally important now, an equally important question now is not just who started the war, but but who stopped the war? In other words, we should start talking about who's responsible for the war not stopping. Up to now, Scott, it's been like this really controversial question, like who started the war? The, the, the U.S. says it's an unprovoked war and blames it all on Russia. Russia says it's NATO encroachment and blames it all on NATO. And it's been, you know, really controversial talking about who stopped, who started the war, who's responsible. And I'm arguing that at this point, the it's still, of course, an irrelevant question. You can't escape responsibility for who started the war, but it's an equally important question now to look at responsibility for who has failed to stop the war. Um, so that's why I call it who stopped the war, not because it's over and you didn't know it, um, because we need to start talking about who's responsible for not stopping the war. That's an equally important question now. Yeah. All right. Well, so what's the answer to it? Well, <laughs> it's a tough answer, you know, but what I, what I try to do in this article is um, try to look at some of the, the sort of major statements that have been made in the last few days. And I, I kind of start the article with, with Biden's metaphor about an off-ramp um, to the war. And, and Biden said recently that we're still trying to figure out what Putin's off-ramp is. And my argument is that, is that although, the, you know, using the metaphor of the off-ramp on the highway, although the, the person who drove the car onto the highway on the on-ramp is responsible for driving on the highway at some point if you've driven past all kinds of off-ramps then you also bear some responsibility for still being on the highway and my argument is that even if you know russia took the on-ramp onto the highway the states has passed up so many off-ramps that at this point you have to say you know even if russia put you on the highway 
the only reason you're still on the highway is because you keep passing up the off ramps. So, so my my contention is that the U.S. has had multiple opportunities to contribute to stopping the war, has deliberately passed up those opportunities, and therefore, even if you want to argue they don't bear responsibility for putting us into the war or onto the highway, they bear some responsibility now for keeping us in the war, keeping us on the highway. And at this point, as the war is escalating to more and more dangerous levels, to levels that we can't let it escalate to, you need to take some responsibility for still being there and get back to those off-ramps. And, and, and you know, Biden shouldn't be saying we're still trying to figure out the off-ramp. Biden knows there's been all kinds of off-ramps and he needs to reset and get back to those off-ramps and get off before this war escalates to, you know, levels that nobody ever thought it could escalate to. All right. Well, I got to presume a lot of people really don't know what you're referring to. This is all okay. Russian aggression. America's helping the Ukrainians defend themselves. That's what TV says. What are some of these off-ramps that you mentioned here? Describe them and describe how you know. Okay. So, Scott, in the article, the first ramp off-ramp I look at isn't looking at, you know, someone who published something on, you know, antiwar.com or someone who can say, you know, this is an alternative voice or a fringe voice. Recently, the former chiefs of staff, um, Admiral Mike Mullen, this is a guy who, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he was, he's a chief of staff under uh, Obama correct. and under Trump, right? Yeah, so this is, this is a mainstream, mainstream, you know, head of the U.S. military. And he said recently in an interview that we have to do everything we can to stop the war and we have to stop it now. And then he added the really interesting line, and I'm quoting, this is Admiral Mike Mullen said, it's really up to Tony Blinken and the other diplomats to figure out a way to get both Zelensky and Putin to the table, and the sooner the better. So here's here's the former head of the U.S. military saying it's up to the U.S. diplomats to get Zelensky and Putin to the table. It's up to the U.S. to do it. Why is it up to the U.S. to do it? Well, you know, he didn't say that, but but you could argue a lot of reasons why it's up to the U.S. to do that. One is that, you know, Zelensky has signed a decree that he won't talk to Putin. So, so Russia and Ukraine aren't about to talk right now unless somebody makes them. And who's got the leverage to make them? Well, the states does. But, but also, you know... Um, um, also, interestingly, you can you can look at other reasons why the U.S. has, I would argue, Scott, a, a, a legal and a moral obligation to be the ones to do what Mullen said, and that's to get Zelensky and Putin to the table. And the, the first one is because you could make, first of all, there's a legal argument. The, the, the U.N. You know, charter says that you've got to explore all you know, negotiations, mediations, everything, if there's an opportunity to avoid a war. And I don't think it's hard to argue that there was an opportunity to avoid the war. In fact, I think you could argue there were a couple of opportunities to avoid the war. One was the Minsk II agreement, which was an agreement that dates back to 2014 that was um, negotiated by Germany and France and signed by Russia and the Ukraine and approved by the U.S. and the U.N. And the, the Minsk II agreement is long and it's complicated, but it, but it boils down to um, the Ukraine would do two things. They would give autonomy to the Donbass and they would promise not to join NATO. So that that was an agreement that was signed. That was an agreement that was the best possible solution to the problem today. And if it had been signed we probably wouldn't have a war today. Well, Zelensky got elected on a promise to sign Minsk II. He wanted to do that. He needed U.S. support to do that um, because he faced severe hostility from elements at home. 
He needed U.S. support to do that. He did not get the U.S. support. The U.S. let him down and abandoned him. So he didn't sign um, Minsk II. And then when he didn't sign it, and there was opportunities for the U.S. and Europe to pressure him to get back and sign that and and do the things that would be an off-ramp long before the war even started, the the U.S. and and the European Union did nothing to pressure him. So so they, they passed up this it's not even an off-ramp. You wouldn't have been on the highway. There wouldn't have been a war. So so since the U.S. had an obligation to achieve their goals without a war before going to war and didn't do that, they have an obligation to do that now. The second one um, came, you know, eight years later on the eve of the war when, um, and this is looking like December 2021, just before the war, when, when um, Putin presents the U.S. with a, a, a formal proposal on mutual security guarantees, he he begs the U.S. for immediate negotiations. And the U.S. not only completely like brushes them off and dismisses it, they, will, they won't even, and we know this because senior U.S. officials have said this, they won't even discuss the core points like the idea of Ukraine not becoming a, a member of NATO. So this is the second opportunity the states had to use negotiations to avoid the war. So having failed to prevent the war, there's a sort of moral obligation on the United States um, to attempt to return to exploring those pathways and, and end it now. The the second reason I think the states has a moral obligation to fix it, and this is a bigger one, Scott, and it's gotten some attention. It's gotten a lot of attention, but I don't think it's gotten anything like the kind of attention it deserves, especially in the mainstream. And that's the idea that that early on in the war, Ukraine and Russia had really tentatively arrived at a way to end the war. I'm talking about talks that happened in April in Istanbul under Turkish mediation. And um, again, this, is, this has been revealed in the mainstream media that, that, that Russia and Ukraine had come to a tentative agreement on the points that would lead to a ceasefire to, to the ending of the war. Um, and, and what happened is, is, uh, is a couple of things. Boris Johnson immediately um, runs off to, to Kiev and he tells Zelensky that um, he shouldn't be negotiating with Putin. He should be pressuring Putin and that even if Zelensky's ready to sign, the West isn't. And really, really interestingly, you know, months after the Istanbul talks, the Turkish foreign minister who was there, who was involved in the mediation, you know, he went on the record as saying, you know, we really thought the war was almost over. We had really come to agreement this thing could have ended. And why didn't it end? And again, I'm quoting, he said, because there are countries within NATO who want the war to continue. Um, this was an episode. Op- so, so the states had two opportunities to prevent the war from happening. Then once the war happens, there's there's the opportunity for it to end. The states prevents it. Why do they prevent it? Because the State Department said, and they've been saying this since the beginning of the war, that even if the Ukraine's willing to sign an agreement, the West isn't because, and again, I'm quoting, the war is bigger than the Ukraine, it's bigger than Russia. Ned Price, the, the State Department spokesman, when Zelensky was ready to negotiate with Russia to end the war, said that there are core principles that are bigger than, than, bigger than Ukraine, bigger than Russia. So, Scott, in other words, what the state said is, we're not going to let the Ukraine settle this war on their terms. They need to go on fighting it to satisfy our terms, our foreign policy goals. So I think you could make an argument, and this may, be, this may sound crazy, but I think you could make an argument that after, after Istanbul, in a way, this really becomes America's war. Because Ukraine was willing to settle 
on the terms that satisfied their conditions. And the states told them, go on fighting until we can settle the terms on our conditions. So the U.S. has an obligation to, to pressure them back to the table, get off the ramp, because the Ukraine was ready to settle on their terms. We're fighting for America's terms. So this is kind of America's war now. So when Mike Mullen says um, it's up to the U.S. to force the diplomats back to the table, I think there's a real obligation for them to do that. And then the next step, and I'll, I'll let you get something in because I'm talking nonstop. The next step is is now, currently, at this moment, what what possible off-ramps are there that the U.S. is just flying by, just driving by the off-ramps? So, so that's the answer to why I think there's an obligation to do it and, and, and where it comes from. Do you want me to just keep talking or do you want to interject something? You know what? Go ahead, man. Okay, I'll just, I'll just keep talking. Um, okay, so now we get to today. Mullen has said we need to get them to the table, okay? So I'll what, tell you what, what, I'll chime in here for entertainment's yeah, sake. Go, go. I think it's important to note that Admiral Mike Mullen could have just as easy said, it's on Vladimir Putin to do the right thing starting right now, and got on his moral high horse and just said a bunch of words, just like everybody else on TV is doing. And so yep. for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to decide that I'm going to go on a Sunday morning TV show and yeah. I'm going to say it's time for Blinken to go to Geneva, like Scott Horton always says on the Kennedy show. That's actually a big damned deal. Okay, it's sorry, go really back. Uh, uh, no, 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 you're right. You're, you're, you're right to interject that. That's what I, was, what I was trying to say at the beginning. This isn't a French person. This is Admiral Mike. This is a really big deal. And he could have said that. You're right. He could have said Putin better do this or whatever, but, but he didn't. He, he said it's on Tony Blinken. It's on the American diplomats. But what happens is right after Mike Mullen says it's up to the U.S. to force Zelensky and Putin back to the table, the Washington Post reports in an article um, <laughs> that, that the U.S. officials have ruled out the idea of, here's what they said, U.S. officials have ruled out the idea of pushing or even nudging Ukraine to the table. So when, when Mullen says it's the U.S. responsible to get them to the table, the American response is we are not going to push Ukraine to the table. It's a, it's a Ukrainian decision to make. They say it's totally up to the Ukraine. It's not totally up to the Ukraine for the two reasons I just said, that the Americans do have a moral responsibility, leaving aside the fact that the only reason Ukraine can go on fighting this war is because they're fighting with U.S. weapons. Um, that gives the states a stake to, to, to end it. So um, so it, it's, it's, it's absurd because if what Mullen is saying is you have to explore every off-ramp, then, then to say that we're not even going to try to negotiate is hardly exploring an off-ramp. Then yeah. what happens shortly after that, Scott, is Turkey comes forward again. Okay, so Turkey's played a leading role in trying to... By the to way, before we go too far on the timeline there, I wanted to remind everyone that I believe it was April the 4th, the Washington Post reported, and they're paraphrasing, I believe Eastern European member governments here more than Americans, but more or less this is the consensus view anyway was, and this is, I believe, the Post's words, but still, we don't want to see the war end too early. In fact, no, that may have been just an anonymous source of theirs that they're directly quoting. We don't want the war to end too early, even if it means Ukrainians continue fighting and dying, because ultimately, essentially, we want to weaken Russia on the Ukrainian battlefield before they think about moving on anyone else in Eastern Europe. So we're so going to that, that, grind that them statement. down into the dirt there. And yeah, that, they so just that, said that in the Washington Post. Fighting yeah. and dying too early. Just Google and it that, yourselves, everybody. 
that statement was made in two ways. One was um, Austin, the Secretary of Defense, who said we don't want it too early because we want to weaken Russia. And, and the other one is this constant insistence that comes out of the State Department that we don't want this to end too early because we want to put Ukraine in the strongest possible position for negotiations. But of course, when you're fighting like that, that, that has to go on with, with negotiations happening simultaneously because despite the U.S. saying that you don't talk to Russia while they're bombing Ukraine, that's when you always talk to me when you're at war. You don't talk after the war. Negotiations always happen while you're bombing. It's absurd to say you wouldn't negotiate while you're bombing. So, so, and it's worse than just, you know, grinding on with you. Because, if, I mean, you got to remember what's happening in this war right now is, is I was just, I was just reading a huge thing on, on what a proxy war is. And, and, you know, this, this war is pushing proxy war to the limits before you can say it's an American war, because what you've yeah. got is the U S You've got the U.S. arming Ukraine. They're repairing and maintaining the weapons remotely. They're training them how to use the weapons. They're giving them intelligence on where to fire the weapons. They're even intervening now and doing the strategy. So they're arming, training, targeting, doing the strategy. They're doing they're doing all of this except they're doing it with Ukrainian recruits instead of with U.S. recruits. So while the U.S. says you may have satisfied your goals with Russia, but we haven't satisfied ours. So fight on. And America fights this war by using Ukrainian soldiers and letting Ukrainians die. Um, and, and then to say we don't have a stake to push them and negotiate, it's, it's, it's absurd and it's, it's tragic and it's horrible um, that, that the U.S. is fighting for its goals by letting Ukrainian soldiers die. It's horrible. And, and currently... You do have these off ramps, even though even though the the um, the post is reporting U.S. officials saying that you know we won't nudge them. You know Turkey has again suggested that they'd be willing to mediate talks between Russia and the West, and Turkey's one of the countries that are positioned to maybe do it. So Russia, Turkey suggests mediations, and and Sergey Lavrov, the the Russian foreign minister, responds by saying, um, "We'll we'll talk to the states, we'll talk to the Turkey on ways to end to, to we'll talk to the states, or we'll talk with uh, Ukraine on ways to end the war, no problem." So what happens again? The State Department comes forward. And they and Ned Price says that that Lavrov's comments are just posturing, and we have no confidence that that Russia is serious. Okay, fine, <laughs> maybe it is posturing. Maybe Russia is not serious, but that's an off ramp to explore. You don't just say that. If Russia says we're willing to talk, you don't just say ah, they're just posturing. If you if you need to end the war now, you explore that. Um, India has come forward and said they'd be willing to negotiate. That's an interesting choice, you know, because because India's not in the war. They're a, they're a member of um, BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. In other words, they they have relations with Russia. They have influence over Russia. They're also an ally of the states. They're in a good position. They could meet. Nobody's followed up. No one's explored that. There's an off ramp or a possible off ramp. Um, nobody responds to that at all. Um, then you get um, uh, the question on on the other day, October 11th. The, the idea comes up at a G20 summit. Um, maybe maybe Putin and Biden could talk on the sidelines. So um, they ask again, Sergey Lavrov, what, what would, you know could could that happen? And, and he says, you know, if a, if there was an offer made for Putin and Biden to talk, we'd review that. We'd consider it. So this is the I mean, talk about high level. The the the. Lavrov the, the, um, is, is saying that Putin would be willing to talk to Biden. And on the very same day, and again, like he said, you know, see the mainstream, it's Sunday morning, whatever, he's on CNN, I think it was. Um, 
Biden just says, I don't see any reason to meet with Putin. What do you mean no reason to meet with Putin, <laughs> right? The civil war is asking to horrors. I don't see any reason to meet with Putin. And then he escalates it. And he doesn't just say he doesn't just say that I have no intention of meeting with Biden. He says he says no one's prepared to negotiate with Russia about this. So he, he's speaking now for for you know all of NATO, all of Europe. So so here's Russia saying we'd have a high level meeting between Putin and Biden, and Biden's saying we're not going to talk to him. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton, and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback, too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping, too. you got to admit, too, Ted, that even if that wasn't their policy, which I think it is, that Biden is rightfully terrified to be in a room alone with Vladimir Putin because he knows that he's batty and senile and is not going to be able to handle his arguments and is not going to be able to keep it together. And so, I mean, imagine having a president who doesn't have the confidence to go and meet with the Russian president at the time attention because he knows he's half batty old lady at this point. You know, I, I think that that Biden knows that Putin was willing to come for the, those security guarantees at the beginning and say, you need to promise that NATO won't be in Ukraine and Ukraine won't be in NATO. And Biden knows and Zelensky knows and everyone knows NATO's not going to let Ukraine in. So he could have just said that. He could have just stopped a war. How do you sit in a room with Putin now when, when you know you had this perfect chance to stop the war and you didn't? And Putin says... You promised us no eastward expansion of NATO, and here you are in Ukraine, and I need a promise that you're not going to come into Ukraine, and, and Biden won't give that promise. So I, I, that's that's an uncomfortable place to be in the room. But, Scott, if you look back over sort of the, the history of the of sort of conflicts, you know, you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, you look at all kinds of things, and any diplomat will tell you that you don't even need the two presidents sitting in a room. It starts with back-channel talks. It talks with secret meetings. I mean... Kennedy and Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis could do what they did because it was a secret meeting. And in, in fact, in fact, you know, they made Khrushchev, which ruined Khrushchev, but they made Khrushchev promise never to reveal that it had been a sort of quid pro quo. These things happen in secret. But as far as I can tell right now from the reading I'm doing and the, the people I'm talking to, I don't think 
anybody's talking about negotiating the war. To, to the extent that Russian and American low-level officials are meeting at all and having some communications, they're not negotiating into the war. They've got no mandate from Biden to negotiate into the war. Um, in fact, it, 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 it seems like the opposite, that they're pushing Ukraine to continue the war. So even if Biden doesn't want to sit in the room with Putin, um, he could send people a thousand steps down the ladder to start ladder to start the talking, uh, and and they're not. And yet here we have a situation in Ukraine where Russia's made it really really clear that if you threaten the territorial integrity of Russia, if you attack Crimea, maybe even if you attack Donbass, you know we we consider that attack on our territory, and and so we would use whatever means we need to. This has been this has been a bit exaggerated at times, but we would use you know whatever means. But but this is this is going to happen because. The, the state says Ukraine is Crimea, so they're greenlighting the, the they're greenlighting Ukraine to attack Crimea. Crimea blows up the uh, Ukraine blows up the, the the bridge, you know, from Russia to Crimea. So th- this is a position that we face the risk of extreme escalation, and yet Biden's not sending even low level officials to try to de-escalate that. Talk about missing off the all the off ramps. Here's Putin saying, "I'll talk to you." Here's um, Lavrov saying, you know, we'd be willing to meet with Ukraine. We'd be willing to meet with the states. Here's yeah. Turkey saying we'll mediate. Here's India saying we'll mediate. Here's all these off-ramps. And, and at each stage, the U.S. says, we're not going to talk to you. And we're not going to, they say we're not going to push Ukraine to talk to you. The truth is, as we know from Istanbul, it's not that we're going to push Ukraine to talk to you. We're going to forbid Ukraine from talking to you. Yeah. That's what well, Boris Johnson that, uh, did when he went to Kiev. Before we run all the way out of time here, this will be the first time I quote Netanyahu as an authoritative source on anything other than he means it when he says that there will never be an independent state in Palestine. But what it is, is he was interviewed by Fareed Zachariah, who was such as, oh, how come you're gay in love with Putin? Don't you regret all the time you spent with him? And Netanyahu's like, well, you got to understand I'm bombing Iran right next to Russian forces on the ground. So I got to get along with this guy in Syria, he means. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, pr- a pretty business-like answer. And it was just funny the way Zachariah framed it. Like, this is your bromance, yeah. all this. Don't you regret it that you gave credibility and, and appeased this guy all this time? Like, Jesus. Ugh. Anyway, sorry, that's a tangent. Then Netanyahu no, but- says, listen, man, there could be a nuclear war. And I'm really concerned about it. Yep. And I thought, huh. You know, that's some interesting messaging <laughs> from Benjamin Netanyahu. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think of the guy as, you know, essentially it's, sociopathic and not truly concerned about anything the way normal humans are. Mm-hmm. But um, just because, you know, he's a politician, that's not supposed to be an ethnic or religious thing. Scott, I, it, you know, it's concerning. He's because, a particularly you know, cynical politician. That's yeah. all I meant. But anyway, he was he was happy to say that on CNN. Hey, listen, I'm really concerned about nukes going off here, Fareed. Why don't you snap out of your little narrative and pay attention to what's going on here, pal? Yeah, it's it's like it's it's like it's, it's unprecedented. It's astonishing that you have this risk of a nuclear war, and everyone's just sort of going on, seeing what happened. You know, the 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 russian the russian policy on on first strikes is that they would only use a nuclear weapon if you know the existence of the country was threatened and people have been really critical of this but the us has the same policy right it's written in the us nuclear posture policy and and the us when he doesn't say it has to be a response to nuclear weapon the us nuclear pol- posture policy as i understand it says that even under the threat of conventional weapons if the united states 
territory is threatened, the U.S. would use a nuclear weapons of first response. So this isn't like anyone has a nuclear bomb is insane, right? But this isn't like insane Russian stuff. This is why countries have nuclear weapons. They shouldn't have nuclear weapons, but this is why they have it. The Americans have the same policy. So, so Russia has a policy they could use one. Will they use one? I don't know. I read all kinds of disagreement. I, I personally think that Russia has all kinds of conventional weapon states steps they could take long before nuclear to wipe out Ukraine if they wanted to. But but they could use a nuclear weapon. It's a, it's a serious thing. And although Netanyahu is talking about, you know, coordinating flights and stuff, and the media likes to talk about countries that aren't condemning Russia as being not condemning Russia because they can't because of trade or defense. But the fact is, as is, you know, you've talked about with tons of people by now, is that is that lots of countries aren't lining up with Russia because a lot of the world doesn't see this the way the U.S. and NATO sees this. And and I, I don't know that the only reason countries are are doing this is because they need to coordinate militarily, they're dependent military militarily. They also don't like the idea that that the United States as a as a sort of unipolar hegemon can or hegemon or whatever can can sort of move NATO and do it at once in the world. And they feel vulnerable to I mean, a lot of yeah. these countries have been victims of this too. So it's not, you know, it isn't just military coordination. A lot of people don't want to completely come down on this American side because they're not completely on the American side. And I'm sorry, we um, don't have the time to go into that any further, man, because yeah. I'm about to have to go. But I keep bringing up nukes, but I want to make it clear to people that the reason I do is just because it's not that, oh, I believe everyone should be afraid and buy my storable food brand or some kind of thing like that. Um, it's just that, well, the second headline on antiwar.com today, SecDef tells Ukraine it will have, quote, what it needs to defeat yeah. Russia. And this has yeah. been the American policy is that whatever it takes, as long as it takes, those are Biden's words, we will send in as many weapons as we can to Ukraine, not just to keep them from being defeated, but to drive yeah. Russia all the way the hell out of Ukraine. And a lot of times they specifically even include Crimea. On the and other the side way, of that is Russia that will never accept that level of defeat. And, you know, Peter Van Buren was on the show. I was like, I don't know. Maybe they'll take like a little bit of the Donbass and just save enough face, claim that they did enough to hurt Ukraine's military, which is all they wanted to do. And they'll just settle for the city of Donetsk in Donetsk province or something. You know, I don't know. Um, on the other hand, they could by force you know, really mobilize and forcefully take all that they've claimed, probably, if mm -hmm. they flood enough hundreds of thousands or even millions of men in, then they can take, you know, all of Kherson and Zaporozhye and the rest too. Um, maybe. So it's the irresistible force and the unmovable object is the problem here. And that's why I'm talking about nukes is not that yep. I see any real reason for Russia to use them today or for america to then you know vaporize moscow but just something's got to give here and yeah. as you've been explaining for half an hour joe biden's sitting here threatening armageddon and refuses to admit of course that him and his people started this back eight years ago uh for one but two that he has any role at all in actually seeking these so-called off-ramps that he claims he needs to find to provide to Putin to end the war somehow, short of unconditional surrender is what it sounds like there. So, uh, you know, which is it? And if he's going to, if he wants to talk, he should just put Blinken on a plane to Geneva. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the, the announced policy is 
look, it's not we're going all the way to Moscow, so thank God, right? But it's still a level of defeat that we know that the Russians will not accept here. And I don't really know whose advantage is what in terms of Russian manpower on one side and NATO technology and money and CIA planning and whatever on the other, whoever, you know. But looks like the war could go on a long time, and that just seems to me like an absolutely untenable situation, as it has been from the beginning. That there's fighting going on on Russia's western border at all is intolerable. Everyone should be talking about everything except how to keep fighting. That's always been, should have been the position of all of mankind this entire time. But and Scott, just like two, two, two quick points. The, I mean, the one tragic thing about the fighting going on and on and on is that in the end, the settlement is probably going to look a lot like it would have if it never started, except all these Ukrainians have died and suffered. And yeah, Minsk, simply, dude, you know, and, and, yeah, yeah. And the other point, bring Merkel bring back. back to to yeah. sign yeah. the same deal we already had in 2015. Yep. And then just to bring it back to what we were talking about, you know, originally your the point you brought up about, um, you know, saying that we'll make sure that that Ukraine has everything it needs to defeat um, Russia. Talk about a missed off ramp because again, that was never Ukraine's goal at the very beginning when they were willing to sign, you know, a negotiated agreement with Russia. Um, it was never about defeating Russia. Um, it, it was about pursuing, you know, the goals that satisfied Ukraine. So this idea that we're going to arm you until you defeat Russia, that's an American hijacking of the agenda of the war. That's a mixed off-ramp. They could step back from that off-ramp, go back to the terms that were Ukraine's terms for ending the war, stop trying to make it America's terms, go back to that reset point, get off the off-ramp and, and sign it with, you know, Ukraine's agenda, not America's agenda. So that's 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 a huge missed off-ramp, right? Yep. All right, listen, I'm so sorry that we're out of time because I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon. But uh, And, man, I'm really sorry that we didn't get to address this extremely important article. It's your latest. It's, I believe, at the top of the page today. Yes, it's today's current article at antiwar.com. The backdoor to NATO. This is about the de facto NATO membership of Ukraine. And I'm certain this is the best article on this subject that anybody could find anywhere. So that's uh, original.antiwar.com the back door to NATO. Thank you again, Ted. Thanks so much, Scott. It was great talking to you. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com Antiwar.com Scotthorton.org and LibertarianInstitute.org